Our sermon today will be taken from John chapter 7, verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. This is the word of God. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote his, with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Thus says the Lord. Friends, um, welcome again. I am not preaching the sermon to you this Sunday, but instead I'm here to introduce the one who is preaching the sermon to you this Sunday, um, Elias Pribadi. Um, before I introduce him personally as well, uh, let me just take this opportunity to remind us um, we're very jealous for this pulpit. We're very jealous that the Word of God is being preached to us faithfully um, in accordance with the Scriptures, in accordance with the Church through 2,000 years of its existence so that we can really get the meaning of the word out of the word itself and not merely the wisdoms of man. And so we do emphasize the necessity of um, formal theological education for us to preach the word here for our teaching here and um, so that we can understand that anyone who preaches the word here to you will have a working knowledge of the Bible, the whole counsel of God, knowledge of the reformed faith and of church history. Not so that we can communicate that formal theological education necessarily makes you any better or any sounder than any other person, but we want to make sure that we communicate the gospel that saves. This is not merely for academic nitpickiness or uh, anything like that. This is really about understanding that there's only one message that saves people, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we better communicate that well from the text of Scripture. And Elias is certainly um, qualified. He, uh, some of you know him already. He leads a worship here for us, or a music team. He also leads a community group. He leads a central community group in Kuningan. And he's been with us for a while now. And he also has a Master of Arts in Theology from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, California. And um, uh, Elias will come up here now. And uh, before we really do invite him in, I just want to also mention, you know, some of you maybe know this, but I knew Elias from high school. Uh, a little fun fact, um, we used to play in a worship team together, in a Christian worship team in high school um, here in Jakarta, and um, though both of us at that point were not yet Christians. We played guitar, and we worshipped, and we led people in worship, but neither of us were Christians. We were still very much dead in our sins. We were still performing for our own works. We were performing for our own glory. We were just wanting to be up on stage, but we did not understand the God about whom we were singing. We were still blind to who he was. We were still dead in our sins. But God changed everything. And Elias is a different person now. God resurrects the dead. He's no longer blind. Now he sees the God of whom we sing. Elias is no longer just a better person than who he was before. He is a new person entirely. So Elias, as he comes up here to preach the word of God to us, we understand that this is not on his shoulders nor on anybody here who preaches the gospel to you. No. The authority of God and the power that saves depends upon Christ and the righteousness that he purchased for us through his perfect work, not ours. So Elias, let me pray for you and for us. Father, we are amazed at your gospel, that you do not make us better people or improve people, 
you make us new people. You cause us to see what we once did not see. You cause us to desire new things. You change our hearts completely. Though we have spurned you, you have pursued us. So Father, I pray for our brother Elias as he preaches the word today, that your spirit would fill him, that it is your words that will be preached from this pulpit every week, and that your people may be revived so that they might see the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Elias, come preach to us. Thank you, Gray, for the kind introduction. And yesterday, Tezar gave me a call, and he told me that the first five minutes would be the most nerve-wracking time up in here. And I would say that I wholeheartedly agree that this is not only exciting, but this is a time where it's also nerve-wracking. But the beauty of us being here and to listen to the Word of God is that this is God's work. And this is God who is going to preach the word to us, and he is the one who is going to do the work in our hearts. And we find a lot of confidence in that, and I'm excited today to be sharing my notes with you on our sermon text instead of writing notes usually on Sundays. So here we go, John chapter 7, verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. So just before we go into our text, I do want us to do a little review of where we have been in the study of the Gospel of John. And today we are continuing the story from last week where Gray preached from chapter 7, 37 to 52 on Jesus as the living water that never runs dry, where Jesus invites those who are thirsty to drink from him, and he promises to them that they will never be thirsty again. And that moreover, their hearts will overflow with living water. This is in line with what John the author has been preparing for us to expect in the beginning of the book of John, which is in the prologue where Jesus is the Word, and Jesus is God, and He is the life and the light of men who was sent into the world in order that the world may be saved through Him. But here is the irony. His mission would always be in opposition to the world who did not want to be in the light. And ironically, those who would reject Jesus are his own people. Who are his own people? The Jews, the religious people who claim to be the keepers and the teachers of the law. And if we remember our study of the book John, in the book of John so far, right? We see Jesus getting in trouble with Nicodemus, a high-ranking Pharisee with the temple workers who turned the temple into a marketplace, with the Jews regarding the Sabbath law, and last week with his very own brothers who think that Jesus is crazy for claiming that he comes from God and that he is God. And today we arrive in chapter 8, where we see this opposition between light and darkness, Jesus and his very own people, Jesus and the Pharisees still developing before us. However, we see a different form of manifestation of darkness in this story. This time in chapter 8, we see the Jews, the Pharisees, and the scribes confronting Jesus by bringing a woman caught in adultery for a very specific purpose. That is to trap Jesus into breaking the law of Moses. Why the law of Moses? And if we remember our study so far, the Pharisees are known for their devotion to obeying the law as a way to earn righteousness. And this is what we call legalism. And if we remember what legalism is, legalism is the pursuit of obeying the law of God to earn God's spiritual points and reward. In John 5.39, Jesus makes it very clear by saying to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Why? Because for the Pharisees, how well they obey the law will define how righteous they are. And here is why the story before us today is significant. The story of the woman caught in adultery, the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes, and the woman, 
makes it clear to us that legalism is not the Christian gospel. That legalism is not the Christian gospel. If we take a look at our situation here, right, in our society, everyone has some sort of belief in God. And when asked what comes to mind when the word religions comes, when the word religion comes to mind, they would somehow have this idea that to follow a religion is to essentially obey the law or commandments of that religious belief. Unfortunately, what is the result of that? The result of that is we Christians can slip into thinking that the Christian religion is basically a system of belief that has a list of commands that we should follow. And if we obey them, we'll be rewarded. And if we disobey them, we'll be punished. Sounds pretty simple, right? Our, our religious society preaches legalism. And here is where it gets dangerous. Churches also preach legalism, not knowing that they do so at the expense of preaching the true gospel of grace and mercy. So that's going to be my prayer today. I pray that the Spirit will use this story before us to remind and refresh our hearts how the Christian gospel is radically different than legalism. And the confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus in our story is a confrontation between legalism and the Christian gospel. And I pray that all of us here, if we have struggled with legalism, or we are still struggling with the effects of legalism, that we may be freed from the bondage of legalism and experience the true freedom and power in living out the Christian gospel. Just before we go into our story, right, there is something about this passage that we do need to touch very briefly before we get into our three points of the sermon. CCC loves three pointers, right? So we're gonna get to that. But just before we get to the three pointers of our sermon today, if you look at your ESV Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you, right, what does it say on top of the passage? It does not, uh, it, it, it's not revealed here, but if you open your Bibles, ESV, right, what do you see on top of the passage? This is what it says. You will find this. The earliest manuscripts do not include 7 verse 53 to 8 verse 11. So in other words, this text was only added a few hundred years later into our Bibles. And this is why you see the brackets in the beginning and at the end of the passage and on the screen as well. The fancy term for this is called textual criticism, which is the study of how we get our Bible translations today. So without spending too much time in this issue, I'll say a few words about this because some people would use this as a reason to attack the reliability of our Bibles, right? And if this issue catches your attention, we can certainly talk about this after the service or perhaps during community groups, but if these do not interest you, hang in there. I promise you that we're not gonna be spending too much time in textual criticism, but here we go. So many liberal scholars think that this is a reason to doubt the reliability of our Bible. Why believe in a holy book when there are parts that were only added later after the formation of our Bibles? Well, that's a fair question, right? And how should we respond to this? I guess this is how we should answer that. We praise God for his faithfulness in preserving his word to us through tradition and church history. By God's sovereign providence, this beautiful story is a story that tells a story of redemption. And, it's, and it is preserved and added to our Bibles to confirm the message of the gospel of grace and mercy. So we don't find this a reason for us to doubt scriptures, but we find this as a reason to praise God, to learn about the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ and how he came to redeem sinners. Again, if you have any more questions regarding this, we can talk about this in greater detail later. But now, let us go into the three points of the sermon today. Three things I want to point out from the text. Point number one, the woman caught in scandal. Point number two, the scandalous nature of the law. And point number three, 
the scandalous nature of grace. And before we get into our first point, let us pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, give us grace as we come to listen to your word, your word that is alive to us. And we are thankful, Father, that you are a God who speaks to your people through your spirit, illuminating the word that teaches us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. May you grant me the humility and clarity to preach your word faithfully, and may you grant our hearts the grace and mercy to be edified by the gospel truth, and also the grace and mercy for those still looking for redemption to find today that you have come to save them. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let us go to our first point, the woman caught in scandal. So before we went on a sidetrack, right, we talked about how the Pharisees and the scribes are the people of the law. They are legalists preaching legalism. And what is legalism again? Legalism is the pursuit of obeying the law of God to earn God's spiritual points and reward. And in this passage, the author of the text is exclaiming the point that legalism is not the Christian gospel. However, the problem of many Christians today is the inability to distinguish these two as radically different systems. The result of this is that people become allergic to whenever they hear the law or they have a wrong view or a broken view, an unhealthy view of how we should understand the law and especially the word obedience. I hope today we can liberate it again from legalism and find the joy and freedom in living out the Christian gospel. So let us begin with the setting of the story in verse 2. It tells us that early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. And it continues to tell us that all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Going to the temple in the morning to draw the people to come and listen to him has been something that Jesus has been doing regularly. Note the word again to the temple. Jesus has been drawing the Jews who would normally go to the temple to hear the scribes and Pharisees teach the law. Why is this significant? This is significant because Mark in chapter 1 tells us that the students were astonished at his teachings. For Jesus taught them as one who had authority, and look at this note, and not as the scribes. And at once, Jesus' fame spread throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus must have been teaching the law in a way that's radically different than how the teachers of the law have been teaching the law. And think about how this would affect the Pharisees and scribes. More people are being drawn to the teaching of Jesus than their teaching of the law. And remember, because they are legalists, they are people who find their identity and significance in their obedience and devotion to the law. And for that reason, they become extremely insecure because their religious influence, reputation, and fame are threatened by the growing interest of the crowd in Jesus. So look at what the Pharisees and scribes do in verse 3. And this will give us an understanding of why they do what they're doing. In verse 3 it says, They brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst of where Jesus is teaching and preaching. Friends, this scene is pretty much like a Sunday morning service like today, where Jesus is teaching his students in the morning, of the Word of God. And back then, the Word of God just means the Old Testament. And suddenly, imagine a, a group of religious leaders, or a group of pastors perhaps, suddenly coming and dragging a shameful woman caught in a scandal before us, into our midst. And while all of us are shocked, I would be surprised, I would be extremely shocked. Look at what the religious leaders say to Jesus in verse 4. This is what they say. Again, it's in the middle of a church service where everyone is still trying to figure out what is happening before us. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, 
Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They bring a weighty charge or accusation. Note, has been caught, right? It's a perfect tense. They bring a weighty charge and accusation against the woman that she's caught in a scandalous act. And if you go down to verse 6, it tells us the real reason why they are doing what they're doing. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. You see, they are waiting for Jesus to say something that they can use against Jesus. And they're thinking probably something like this. Jesus, are you going to obey the law that commands us to stone such women and risk damaging your reputation as the one who provides forgiveness? Or are you going to defend the guilty woman at the expense of disobeying the law of Moses? What are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to say? But before we go into Jesus' answer to that question, can we all imagine the shame and fear that she, the woman caught in scandal, must be experiencing during this time? She was caught in the middle of an act of adultery. And not only that, now the public knows about her scandal. We live in a very honor-shame society, right? Where reputation matters. And imagine us here being that woman where your reputation is being thrown out to the garbage. Now everyone knows that you are that woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. What have the Pharisees done that reveal to us how legalism works? First, legalism defines your identity based on your works. Works driven. Do you notice that the woman remains nameless? That her identity is only tied to her actions as the one who has been caught in the act of adultery. Think about something about your past that you don't want anyone to know because if they do, you would be so extremely ashamed of that. And you've been trying to hide that shame by doing a lot of other things so that people don't know the real you. And imagine if you're now known as merely the man or woman who did such and such shameful, scandalous act. Or perhaps, or perhaps, right? Think about something that you're so proud about, something that you would like everyone to know about you. And that you want to be known as the man or woman who did such great thing. Look, friends, this is what the Pharisees are doing. They want to be known in public as the men who are the keepers of the law by catching men and women who do not keep the law. They want to catch men and women who they catch in scandal so that they look good. That is how legalism works. Legalism defines you based on who you are. And without us realizing, we're all more, we're all closer to legalism than we think, right? Second, what else can we learn about the nature of legalism so far? Legalism is manipulative. It's funny that the Pharisees say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. But if we really go to the law that addresses such issue, which comes from Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, which will not be in your screen, it says this, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. Both the adulterer and adulteress. Why is it that the Pharisees and scribes only brought the women and not also the man? Doesn't this make them lawbreakers as well? Although they claim to be the keepers of the law of Moses. 
they manipulate the situation in such a way that they seem to be the law keepers at the expense of the woman caught in scandal. Legalism fuels the pride of the self-righteous, and legalism crushes the hope of the weak and shameful. Legalism fuels the pride of the self-righteous, the Pharisees, and legalism crushes the hope of the weak and shameful, the woman caught in scandal. Here's what's unfortunate. Does the church feel like that most times? That the church is a gathering of self-righteous people, that the ideal picture of what it means to be a Christian is that if you have your life put all together nicely and neatly. And if we are honest to ourselves, we feel uncomfortable being in fellowship with people who have been caught in scandal. We are closer to legalism than we might ever think. Just before we move on to the second point, how about if we ask ourselves this question too? Imagine the scene, right? The woman is right here. Jesus is teaching. The group of religious leaders are challenging Jesus. What are you going to say? If we are the crowd there, what do you wish for Jesus to say? Should he condemn her? Or should he defend her? I know that some of us would immediately think, of course Jesus would defend and forgive her. Jesus is Jesus. But if we are honest to ourselves, if we are honest about our hearts, it is not as simple as it seems, right? Think with me. What about if the husband of the woman who got cheated is a close friend of yours? Or how about this? How about if you, if you are the husband of the woman caught in scandal, where suddenly out of the blue, your wife is dragged by these religious leaders and your wife is condemned for her scandalous act. If this scene sounds irrelevant to some of us, what do you wish for Jesus to say to people caught in scandal in your life. Think about the people or leaders today who have made us angry for their scandalous actions. Perhaps government officials who have used money from the poor for their selfish gains. Perhaps church leaders who have abused congregants' money for their own selfish gains people who have betrayed your trust, people who have spread false rumors about you, what do you wish for Jesus to say about them now? If I were to be honest with you, I wish Jesus would say something like this. Stone them. Stone them. They deserve it. Look at the pain they've inflicted on people whom I care about. Stone them. Stone her. She deserves her punishment. But here's something that we can also learn about legalism. Legalism makes the law subjective, right? After thinking about these things, we cry for justice. Judge her. Judge them. How about if you are the woman caught in scandal? How about if you are that shameful woman that is dragged here in the midst and now the world, your close friends, know who you truly are? What do you wish for Jesus to say now? Friends, only when we are the ones catching others in scandal do we cry, justice. But when we are the ones caught in scandal, do we cry, mercy. Why? 
Legalism blinds us from seeing our own sins. And legalism magnifies the sins of other people. This is what the Pharisees and scribes, this is what legalism has done to the woman caught in scandal. As we move to our second point, remember that the Pharisees thought that they have got the perfect opportunity to trap Jesus, right? It's either Jesus condemn the woman or Jesus would forgive the woman at the risk of breaking the law of Moses. And to be honest with you, the Pharisees hope that they would say, forgive the woman because that's what you have been telling us about who you are. And then I'll catch you in saying that, hey, you just broke the law of Moses. But let us go now to our second point to see how Jesus responds to this. Second point, the scandalous nature of the law. So look at what Jesus does in verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Why would Jesus bend down and start writing with his finger on the ground? It's pretty weird, right? And he did this twice, again in verse 8. But here is where Jesus' actions resemble something in the Old Testament that the Pharisees are supposedly very familiar about. So let us, let us look at uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 11 together and 31, verse 18 to see the parallel that Jesus is trying to draw from to make his point. In Exodus 19:11, it says this, For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And at the end of the scene in 31.18, he, God, the Lord, gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai. The two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Written with the finger of God. What is the point he's trying to make here? He is saying to the Pharisees, to the supposed teachers of the law who know the Old Testament inside out, hey, I am he who wrote the law, and I am he who came down to meet Moses. Are you seriously trying to challenge me by using the law of Moses where I am the one who actually wrote the law of Moses? Here, guys, is the scene where the Pharisees are face-to-face -face with the law himself. And what is ironic about legalism again through this? Legalism makes you see the written law, but blinds you from seeing the author of the law. The Pharisees, how ironic, face-to-face -face with the law himself, claiming to be the keepers of the law, but yet they use the law in order to bring down the law himself. Legalism blinds us. Legalism blinds us from the truth. And here now we come to the climax of the story where Jesus responds to the accusers of the woman after he bends down and wrote on the ground with his finger. Look at what Jesus says in verses 7 to 9 with me. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older one beginning with those who thought they have earned the most spiritual points by keeping the law all their lives. As the true law of God, what is so scandalous about his response in verse 7 that these Pharisees begin to leave the scene? Here, friends, is what makes the law scandalous. The law functions as a mirror that makes us see our inability to obey the commands of God. For the law asks us, is there anyone among us who is without sin? Who is worthy to pick up that stone and throw it at the woman caught in scandal? Paul would say that no one is righteous, no, not one. 
For all have been charged, both Jews and Greeks, that all are under sin. The law has made it plain that there is truly no distinction in God's eyes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, according to Romans 3.23. The law, Jesus Christ, have made it plain that none of the Pharisees are worthy. Why? Because all the Pharisees are in scandal as well. They are all guilty before God as well. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Oh, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are the breakers of the law and yet you accuse others for breaking the law. But oh, fellow sinners, are we not also fellow hypocrites like the Pharisees? As I was reflecting about this particular verse from the story, as I was preparing this, I mean, the Lord was gracious enough to remind me of how He saved me from legalism. For the longest time in my life, Right before I became a Christian, I thought I was worthy to pick up that stone and throw it at sinners. I grew, I, I was born in a Christian home. I grew up as a devout religious man. Somehow I was so drawn into godly things and religious things. I was a person who grew up wanting to not only stay out of troubles or scandals, perhaps, I wanted to be one who is known for my good and reputable works. As Gray has mentioned already, right? I was very active in doing church religious things. Even in high school, we were in the same band together, and Evan Tan, our worship leader today, was also in that same band, right? We would look cool, and we would play songs thinking about Jesus and His glory, and yet deep down in our hearts, we are saying to ourselves, oh, look at us, how cool are we? It's great to feel that everyone is watching you. But as I was doing all these things, all these good things, people did not know. I was even blinded that I was also living a lifestyle of sin to myself. I was very good at pretending to be holy and righteous. And people knew me. My family knew me as a good religious kid. Nothing wrong with Elias. As I grew up, I became a very judgmental person. No compassion whatsoever to those struggling with sins. What's so hard for them to repent from their sins and then go to Jesus if I could do all these things? Look at me, follow me. I can do these good things. I can stay away from that trouble. I can stay away from that lifestyle. What's so hard for you to do these things as well? I love the feeling of being able to sound and look better than my friends. It's great. It fuels my pride. But again, legalism blinds me from seeing my own depravity and sin. Well, by the grace of God, my life was turned upside down when I was crushed by this. The law of God made it plain that I could not please God. Nothing I did could make me righteous before Him. Do you know what is the most painful part of that truth? For me, it was that I was no better than even the worst of sinners. Why was it painful again? Legalism. 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 The Lord opened my eyes to see my own depravity, that I was no different than the Pharisee, that I'm no better than the worst of sinners, caught in shame, caught in scandal. For the law of the spirit of life, Romans says, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. I'm no longer the man who is defined by what I did or do or will do. 
but I am defined by what Christ, the perfect man, has done for me. What a great liberating truth, friends. No more room for me to boast in any single thing about myself. No more room for me to judge those in sin. For if God could save a wretched hypocrite like me, he could save the worst of sinners. For he alone does the work of my salvation. But as I was thinking about this, friends, this is what I think makes legalism so dangerous. Legalism loves to convince me that you can be a good person. In fact, that is the greatest lie. One of the greatest lies in our culture today that we are born as good people. That we can be good people only if we think right. And what makes the law scandalous is that it preaches this. You can never be a good person. You are not a good person. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary, as Edwards liked to put it. The scandalous nature of the law is that it makes our inability to carry out the law very plain for us to see. We are hopeless people apart from Christ. If you think today that you are a good person, think again. Look deeper in your hearts. We must now move on to the third point. So we've covered how legalism has caught the woman in scandal, and we've also covered how the law is scandalous, especially to those caught in legalism. And now the scandalous nature of grace. How does grace answer legalism? What makes grace scandalous? Let us look at the end of the story. Verse 9, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And then in verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And the woman said, No one, Lord. And look at what Jesus said to the woman caught in scandal. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Note the scene in verse 9 that Jesus was left alone with the woman caught in scandal. If previous to this, the Pharisees were face to face with the law himself, here, the woman is standing face to face with the law himself. As a matter of fact, this is like all of us standing before God. We all are the woman caught in scandal in this story. But I know that some of us here may be thinking, right, hey, I'm not an adulterer. I'm a faithful husband. I'm a faithful wife. I'm a faithful kid to my parents. I've been a good boy. I would certainly think something like that if I were there sitting with you. But here is what's scandalous about sin. It goes deeper than what is seen from the outside. Sin goes deeper than what is seen from the outside. What is the woman actually guilty of? Is it that she committed adultery? Is that it? Or is she guilty of finding her joy and satisfaction not in the Lord, but in what men can give? That is scary for us, friends. Because if sin is defined in that way, not so much in the things that we can see externally, but if sin is defined by what happens internally that causes us to do the things that people can see, doesn't this make all of us guilty? If we truly look deep into our hearts, aren't we also guilty before God like the woman here? Let us take a moment here, right? Let's not rush things. And take a look at our own hearts. 
and be honest with yourself. Where do you find your ultimate joy and satisfaction in? Where do you find your ultimate joy and satisfaction in? Is it in how well you grow your business? Is it in how well you raise your family? Is it in how well you please your parents? Is it in how well you keep your reputation? You might think that these are good or even think that God wants you to do all these things. But here is what makes it scandalous as well. To make these good things ultimate things is to make God secondary. Is to make God secondary. And that is what defines what sin is. Idolatry, unfaithfulness to God. And that is what the woman is guilty of ultimately. And that is what makes all of us here guilty like the woman. And if some of us here think that, oh, God must not have taken this seriously. Read with me how God reveals his anger against his unfaithful people from Hosea chapter 2, verse 13. God swears to do this. He swears that he will make sure that this is carried out. And this is what it reads. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burnt offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forget me, declares the Lord. In other words, if we find our joy and satisfaction in anything but God, regardless of how good those things are, it could be your family, it could be your reputation, it could be your wealth, it could be your success, it could be your marriage. God is a jealous God, and He will surely punish those who have been unfaithful to Him. The woman caught in scandal has ultimately sinned against God. And we, like the woman caught in scandal, have all sinned against God. And we all, no exceptions, deserve His holy wrath. And we all are these people whom this punishment is going to be given to. Here's where grace gets scandalous. Jesus says to the woman, asks the woman, where are your accusers? Where are those who have shamed and mocked and rejected you? Have they not picked up any stone to throw at you if they claim to be the keepers of the law? And she answers, no one, Lord. As she was thinking, oh my goodness, this is the time where Jesus is going to pick up the stone and stone me, for I deserve the punishment from God. But Jesus said these words to her, Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. And in the passage we read, at our assurance of pardon, Hosea 2, verses 14 to 15, this was the promise of the Lord to redeem his unfaithful people whom he has called as unfaithful, a harlot, a prostitute, a whore. Hosea 2, verses 14 to 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. No longer will you call me my Baal, 
Instead of condemning the woman like what the Pharisees have done, Jesus says to the unfaithful woman caught in scandal, and to you and to me, guilty sinners before him, that we are his bride. And that he has made you and I clean by his blood. That he loves you. That those caught in scandal, Jesus says to us today, I love you. You don't have to be afraid of living your life trying to keep your shame private. For I know them all and I still choose to love you. Grace favors the guilty at the expense of the true righteous one. Who was the one who was ultimately condemned for our sins? Jesus, the righteous one, right? In order that we can be called his bride. There's another thing about grace that is scandalous. The second fold of the passage ends this way in verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Go and from now on sin no more. What makes this scandalous, friends? It is scandalous because grace doesn't only make you clean, but grace gives you a new heart that finds everlasting joy, everlasting satisfaction in Christ alone the giver of all good gifts. The sins that you once loved will begin to fade with this new heart. And basically what he's saying here is this. From now on, come back and love me. Love me, your true lover, your true faithful bridegroom. How do we have the strength? How do we have the strength to love him and to sin no more? Through the new heart that he has so scandalously purchased for us. By sending his one and only son to the cross, the cross where Jesus, the only righteous one, was stoned to death. On that cross, in order that people, you and I, who have been caught in scandal, can now be his bride. Can now find our lover, true lover, the one who will always be faithful to us forever. Friends, here is where Jesus draws the clear line that distinguishes legalism and the Christian gospel. Legalism says, go from now on, sin no more, and you will no longer be condemned. But the Christian gospel says, you are no longer condemned. Therefore, go from now on, sin no more. From now on, Leave your loves of these earthly, temporal things that will never deliver what they promise to you. Wealth, reputation, fame, popularity, human affirmation. Leave all these things behind. They are all fake lovers. They will not give you what they promise to you, which is everlasting joy and satisfaction. Isn't that what our heart craves for? And here Jesus, our true lover, has offered himself, has demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, while we were still caught in our scandals, he died for us. And that becomes the power and the grounds for Jesus to say to this woman, you are no longer condemned. And because of that, Go from now on, sin no more.
Friends, I want to end my sermon with two invitations, very quick ones. First invitation. If you feel yourself, if you see yourself, if you realize, if the Lord convicts your heart today that you are like the Pharisees and scribes, like the people who crave for recognition, envious of the success of other people's ministries and good works, other people's success, always wanting to look good in public, the gospel reminds us today that none of you are more righteous or more holy than the woman caught in scandal. Jesus Christ died to save you from your self-righteousness. Jesus invites us by saying, believe in me, drink from me, for I have died and have rose again to birth in you a new identity that's no longer defined by your imperfect work, but defined by Christ's perfect work. Friends, if this is you, you are no longer the one catching people in shame, for you have been caught in grace. Second invitation. If you find yourself feeling like the woman caught in scandal, the woman who lives in fear, the woman who lives in shame. And sometimes church can feel for you like a place where people is ready to condemn you. The gospel tells us that you are no longer condemned, that I love you. I have died for your deepest shames. And I've given my righteousness upon you that you are now righteous because you are mine. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The gospel frees you from your guilty state and your guilty conscience, for there is already somebody who died your death in order that we may live his life. Believe in me, drink from me. Friends, if this is you, you are no longer the one caught in shame, for you have been caught in grace. May these words of our Lord Jesus be our meditation and reflection today as we prepare our voices to sing of his grace and mercy. Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Let us all pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we prepare to sing this song, may these powerful lyrics be planted deep in our hearts that no list of sins I have not done, no list of virtues I pursue, no list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. Our righteousness is Jesus' life. Our debt was paid by Jesus' death. Our weary load was borne by him, for he alone can give us rest. Lord, I pray that your spirit may edify your children today with a gospel reminder. And I also pray, Father, that you would also use your spirit to remind our forgetful hearts of the beautiful truth of the gospel and ultimately to also make dead hearts alive today. That you are close to the broken, that you have demonstrated your love for sinners by dying on the cross for us. And all these things I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I pursue no list of those 
with you.